0: This morning, I'd like you to turn your Bibles to Romans chapter five, and I want us to begin by reading verses twenty twelve through twenty one, as the Apostle Paul brings forth what is possibly the most profound observation about redemptive history in all the Bible. And I don't think I'm overstating that when I say that. And and I want us to begin by reading these verses together and see if you can understand why I just said what I just said. Let's read it. He says, "Therefore, and that connects it with everything before that, uh, the fact that we are uh, been justified by faith, that God has loved us from before the foundation of the world and and he's demonstrated his love for us, and while we're yet sinners, helpless, ungodly, as Pastor Craig so. Definitely showed us the last couple of weeks and all those things. We've been reconciled to God. And he wants to explain the deep theological significance of that in these verses. He says, Therefore, just as through the one man sin entered the world, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned, for until the law sin was in the world, but sin is not imputed or credited to our account when there is no law. You can break the law, but you can still be a sinner because you just sin. is what he's saying. You don't need a law to sin. He says, nevertheless, death reigned from Adam until Moses, even over those who had not sinned in the likeness of the offense of Adam, who is a type or a foreshadowing of him who was to come, speaking of the Christ. Then he says, but the free gift is not like the transgression, for if by the transgression of the one, the many died, much more. Underline that in their Bible, if it's in your Bible. If you have a New American Standard, it is, and I'd encourage you to get one if you don't have one. But he says, "...much more did the grace of God and the gift of the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, abound to the many. The gift is not like that which came through the one who sinned, for on the one hand, the judgment arose from one transgression." Resulting in condemnation, but on the other hand, the free gift arose from many transgressions, resulting in justification. He says, For if by the transgression of the one, death reigned through the one, much more those who received the abundance of grace. Underline that in your Bible, too abundance of grace. Not just grace, but abundance of grace. He says, and of the gift of righteousness will reign in life through the one Jesus Christ so then as through one transgression there resulted condemnation of all men even so through one act of righteousness there resulted justification of life to all men for as through the one man disobedience the many through the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners even so through the obedience of the one the many will be made righteous The law came in so that the transgression would increase, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more, so that as sin reigned in death, even so grace would reign through righteousness to eternal life, through Jesus Christ our Lord. May God bless the reading of his word. What a fantastic portion of scripture. Now, what we just read is perplexing at worst and beyond human comprehension to the skeptical sinner, but... They are profound at best to the eyes of faith. These verses explain the essence of why there's life and why there's death in this world. They're amazing verses. The apostle tells us that one man, Adam, brought sin into the world and opened wide the gates of death and brought about the condemnation of all mankind and brought in the kingdom of satanic rule and the rule of death that still rules over mankind to this very day. As verse 21 tells us, it says, sin reigned in death. And then he tells us in verse 19 that, that through the one man's disobedience, the many, all mankind were made sinners, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Uh, Paul warned, uh, warned us of that in, in Romans chapter 3, verse 23. And, and this was all brought about by one man's rebellion against God's word as our titular head. Because all sinned in Adam, so that as Ephesians 2, 3 says, we have, wow, that's a weird sound, isn't it? My dog went nuts this morning when he heard that. I thought somebody was breaking in the house. But anyway, uh, because all sinned in Adam, so that Ephesians 2, 3 says, uh, we are all, by our very nature, children destined for wrath. All because of the actions of one man. And the proof positive of all this has been the sinful, wicked history of mankind. I don't know how you perceive history, but I see it through the lens of Scripture. And man has just been evil from day one. You know, it starts in the book of Genesis. It continues through the Bible. It continues through the New Testament. It continues to this very day. Man is evil to his fellow man. It's, uh, look at the last century. Hitler liquidates 100 or 11 million people. Stalin liquidates probably about 50 to 75 million Russians as he takes over. Mao liquidates 75 to 100 million Chinese as he takes over and his reign of terror in there. You know, it's it's amazing. The, you look at Cambodia, you look at Vietnam, you look at the Rwanda, you look at uh what went on in the congo is over 4 million 5 million people are perishing and still perish look at what's going on in the middle east and 50 million plus refugees been driven from their home by all the terror and craziness going on there and then we come up in america of course we man is basically good i don't know what planet you live on but if you subscribe to that That uh, philosophy, uh, I hope to change your mind this morning. Pure and simple. Now, on the other hand, one man, the Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God incarnate, that means in the flesh, brought in the reign of the kingdom of life to negate the reign of death. Listen to verse 17 again. He says, for if by the transgression of the one, death reigned through the one, Adam, much more. Love those two words much more. He uses it twice, verse fifteen. And here, much more, those who receive the abundance of grace and of the gift of righteousness—righteousness righteousness is a gift given to us by God's grace—will reign in life through the Lord, through the one Jesus Christ. And then he says in verse twenty-one, "So that as sin reigned in death, even so grace would reign through righteousness to eternal life." through Jesus Christ our Lord. Now, Paul's main point in this passage is to show us how one man's death, and I might add resurrection, provided salvation to the many. And to do this, the apostle first shows us the reasonableness of that truth since, since one man's sin produced condemnation for us all. We all sinned in Adam as our, our I guess you could say, figurehead and. Uh, and the reign of death was brought about in this world as Satan took over. He brought sin in through Adam, and then death was ensuing because God had deemed it that way. And the inevitable question is, how could what one man did at one point in history have such an absolute effect on mankind? I wasn't there. I didn't do it, but I'm still a sinner. And I proved that over and over again. I'll probably prove it again today. I'm still a sinner, even though I don't sin in the likeness of Adam's offense. We're all sinners. It's an amazing thing. And the question is, how could one man's, what he did at one time in history, have such an absolute effect on all of us? For the analogy of Adam and Christ is what you would call antithetical. It's an analogy of opposites. You have Adam over here accomplishing his destructive work. You have Christ over here. Accomplishing his redemptive work. They're worlds apart, but in a sense, they're the same for what they accomplish for mankind in opposite directions. In Adam's sin, all men are condemned, all men die, but because of Christ's infinite obedience to do the will of God, all who believe in the Savior are pardoned by the grace of God, resulting in justification of faith, it says at the end of verse 16. So we see two men, one a sinner, the other the perfect son of God. We see two events, the disobedience and rebellion of Adam in the Garden of Eden, and we see the cross and the resurrection as Christ graciously and judiciously bore the sins of men, conquering sin and death by rising on the third day. Powerful, powerful passage. Adam's actions producing the reign of sin and the kingdom of darkness and death, which our world partakes of in daily. Christ's finished work producing the reign of life and the kingdom of eternal life. Because the moment you receive Christ as your Lord and Savior, you enter into eternity. Eternity began sometime in eternity past, but for you, in a practical sense, it enters eternity. The moment you receive Christ as Savior and are forgiven of your sins, eternity starts for you. We are already citizens of heaven. We're already in the kingdom. It just hasn't been realized yet, but that will be realized through our passing, whatever that may be. You see, I believe this is the Mount Everest of theological arguments in this passage. Adam's action producing the reign of sin and the kingdom of darkness and death. Christ's finished work producing the reign of life and the kingdom of eternal life, which in turn produces two destinies, heaven or hell. It produces either the second death, Revelation chapter 20 and the lake of fire, or the eternal life of Revelation 21 and 22. And that's the way the Bible ends. Either you're in Adam or you're in Christ. No in-betweens. You're not somewhere in the gray area in between where everybody thinks that they're going to please God and be part of what God wants just because they're a halfway nice person. And if you really dug into their life, you'd probably find out they weren't so nice. But there's no gray area. It's either Adam or Christ, and it's all about the actions of two men, just two. They determine eternity, who you're in. You see, as I said, this is the Mount Everest of theological arguments that the actions of one man, Jesus Christ, could make possible the redemption of all men just as Adam's one act of disobedience brought about the condemnation of all men. That's what this passage is all about. As 1 Corinthians 15.22 says, In Adam all die, so also in Christ all will be made alive as they put their faith in the Savior. Two men's actions have and will determine the destiny of all mankind. That's Paul's main thrust in these verses. Just two. Isn't it amazing? We think it's uh, going to be the Republican Party or the Democrats that determine our fate, liberals or the conservatives or the, uh, you know, what's going on in the Middle East. Or No, it's Christ or Adam. Either you're in one or you're in the other. You're either lost or saved. You're either in the kingdom of death, or you're in the kingdom of life. And we need to get that firmly implanted in our minds. You see, man has never been able to solve the mystery of death. But here the Word of God solves that riddle. In the day you eat of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good, and evil, you shall surely, what? Die. And God's true to His Word. Adam died. So did Eve. So has everybody ever since You know, you have a couple notable exceptions, Elijah and Enoch, but that's about it. Christ even died, although he rose from the dead. But keep in mind that uh, God is true to his word, and the main thrust of this passage is that if you're in Adam, you die. If you're in Christ, you live. Period. End of argument. Ever since Adam's disobedience to God's command, every human being has died The moment we're born into this world, we begin to expire. We begin to draw our last breath with our first breath. But Christ came, John 10.10, tells us what to, I came that they might have life and have it abundantly. It's an incredible promise. The abundant life in Christ, not only does he give us abundance in this life, in a sense that we know who we belong to and why we're here, what our purpose is and who we're serving and what this world is all about. But we also have eternity, don't we? And that's what makes us be able to go through this life and all the trials and tribulations, knowing that someday it's all going to be set right. We won't face the judgment. We won't face eternal damnation. Christ came that we might have abundant life, and how abundant is eternal life? You ever thought about that? I just love to contemplate what the new heavens and new earth is going to be like. You know, where vegetables never die. (laughs) You just eat them, pick them, and they regrow. Uh, Dogs and cats and wildlife and stuff never dies. It's eternal. You got that white horse you come fly back from heaven on. You you know, we'll be able to take a 10,000-year cruise. We'll be able to go on a, I don't know if boats will be here, but uh, there's no ocean, so uh, I don't know if there, there's plenty of lakes and everything will be wonderful. But, you know, think about it. We'll actually get to know each other. Isn't that amazing? Because the kingdom of God is really a kingdom of relationship, isn't it? You know, we are talking about that. We had our 50-year reunion, uh, baseball reunion, celebrating our NCAA championship team 50 years ago. I don't know why these guys can't let it go. But it's, uh, you know, what you did 50 years ago, who cares? You know, but you know what was great was the relationships, the guys, you know, getting to know them, getting to share Christ with them, getting to share our lives with each other. That's what's important, isn't it? And someday we'll be able to do that unhindered we won't be running off to a business meeting. We won't be able, oh, running off to a church meeting. We, we can just sit down and talk and get to know each other and fellowship in the the best, you know, the, the essence of fellowship is Christ in me communicating with Christ in you. That's the most wonderful kind of fellowship there is. And you've all experienced that as you talked about what the Word of God says and you share with each other and... And uh, someday that's going to be unhindered. But today we live in a culture of death and life, and they coexist together, one Adam, one Christ. One more thing before we look at the text. You know, Paul being Jewish would be aware that most rabbis interpret the Messianic text of Isaiah 53 as Israel being the suffering servant or Israel being the nation that will bring about the redemption of the world. They would interpret it that way because various chapters up to that point talk about Israel, my servant. And then all of a sudden you get into Isaiah 53, and it talks about this servant, he, he uses the personal pronoun over and over and over and over again. He'll die for our iniquities. He'll, you know, uh, do all those things. We'll look at that on Easter. But, but uh They interpret it as being the nation, when in essence, it's the person of Christ, the one who brings in redemption. They say the context demands it, when in reality, the context demands that the Messiah be lifted up and honored and glorified for the work he did of going to the cross, bearing our sins, taking on the wrath of God taking on the sin of the world and, and rising from the dead on the third day, conquering both sin and death. And here I believe in Romans chapter 5, Paul puts forth a massive argument that the deeds of one man, both Adam and Christ, can affect the entire world, that one's man's actions can affect your eternal destiny. It's not the work of nations or politics or Man-made religions to do that. We are either in Adam or in Christ. Paul says, end of argument. It's an incredible thing. That's why one of the tragedies of the church in the last 50 years is how political we've become. We need to put our faith in Christ, not in the political system. So, in our time remaining, I want us to look at basically two things. First of all, the man, Adam and the reign of death in verses 12 through 14, and then the man, capital M, Christ, and the reign of life in verses 15 through 21. So let's look at verses 12 through 14 again. The reason I'm reading this so much, I'm hoping you'll go home and read it over and over again yourselves. But verses 12, he says, Therefore, just as through one man, Adam, sin entered into the world, and death through sin and so death spread to all men because of all sin. For until the law, sin was in the world, but sin is not imputed where there is no law. Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam until Moses, even of those who had not sinned in the likeness of the offense of Adam, who is a type of him who is to come, or a foreshadowing of him who is to come. Now, in this passage, we learn a lot about the origin of sin and death. Adam was not the originator of sin, so don't blame him for it. He just got caught up in it. Satan was. And you can read about his fall in Isaiah 14, Ezekiel 28, Revelation chapter 12, and uh, various places in the Bible. Adam was merely the conduit. He was the lightning rod through whom sin came into the world. Satan used him to bring in his sin and rebellion into the world and you can read, we read about that in Genesis chapter 3, right? Satan was indwelling the crafty servant, serpent, and he used Adam and Eve maliciously. And just as God promised, death entered the world through sin, because the wages of sin is death, Romans 6.23, right? Romans rode. You know, all of sin falls short of the glory of God, the wages of sin is death. But the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus. And because all are made sinners in Adam by nature, death spread to all men because we're all sinners and we cannot help but sin. Sin brings about misery and death, both physical and spiritual. That's been the history of mankind, as we said. The last century was the bloodiest century ever. Hundreds of millions, well, millions of people perish because of man's evil. In other words, we don't sin and become sinners. We sin because in Adam we are all sinners by our very nature. You know, I thought about how to illustrate this. And you know know that I love dogs. My dog Cooper loves anybody. I have to chase him down about three times a day because he sees somebody walking by our house because it's a nice place to walk. And uh, I've got to go, and I've got to get a leash or he will follow them because he likes them so much. Last night, a raccoon tried to get his food. He tried to kill it. It <laughs> got away, fortunately. And the person across the street who raises feral cats, those cats are in jeopardy as soon as Cooper sees them. Why did I have to teach him to hate cats and raccoons and love? He sees little dogs that big, and he loves them because he knows they're a dog. I don't know why. That, that's the way. But he just hates raccoons, cats, coyotes. He even went after a coyote the other day, uh, which fortunately I called him off. But um, I didn't have to teach him any of that. That's the way we are with sin. It's inbred it's our nature to sin. It's our nature to hate. It's it's our nature to hate our fellow man and like certain certain parts of our fellow man or certain certain fellow men fellowships or whatever. But uh it's in our nature to hate. War is in our nature. All the you know, all the different things that it's just in our nature. And sometimes it's necessary and important to defend the country and so on and so forth, but it comes naturally not to like one another. It just comes naturally. You don't have to teach it. hope I'm not being too uh, skeptical here, but that's why verse 13 tells us sin was in the world even before the law, because we don't really need to be told we're doing wrong. We just naturally do it. <laughs> You know, when was the last time you had to teach your kids to be selfish? I mean, there's not a school, be selfish. Um, it's in our nature because we're sinners. That's why we need the Savior. That's, that's why it's important to establish in somebody's mind that Jesus isn't just here to give you a better life and be a nicer person, than the, you know, a better version of what you are now. He is here to save you from your sin which is an offense to God, and God will judge it, and we need to be justified before God by faith. That's the whole point. Man doesn't need a law to sin against his fellow man, he will do it naturally because it's in his nature. Law merely condemns and magnifies what's already there, and what's already there? A sinner. Admit it. <laughs> That's what we are, right? hope the roof doesn't blow off. (laughs) Or maybe that's just God accentuating what we just said, right? Uh, Then verse 14, he says, Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam to Moses without the law. Three times that phrase is... Repeated here in verse 17, verse 21, death reigned through the one, verse 17, and although none of us sin in the likeness of Adam's sin, which devastated all of humanity, we still participate, we still partake in Adam's sin, don't we? Which devastated all of mankind, including us. We all still take a part in that, in the rebellion of his sin against the glory of God. Then he ends this section telling telling us Adam was the type or foreshadowing of him Christ who is to come, because just as Adam brought sin into the world and death through sin, the one who is to come, the anti type of Adam and the Christ, would bring grace and redemption and life. So in verses fifteen through twenty one we see Christ's reign of life. Look at verses 15 through 17. He says, but the free gift, I love that he starts out, the free gift. He says, this isn't something you've got to earn. It's not something you deserve. It's not something you can buy. Uh, you don't get it for church attendance. But he says, the free gift is not like the transgression. For if by the transgression of the one, the many died, much more did the grace of God and the gift by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, abound to the many, The gift, again, is not like that which came through the one who sinned. For on the one hand, the judgment arose from one transgression, resulting in condemnation. But on the other hand, the free gift arose from many transgressions, resulting in justification. For if by the transgression of the one, death reigned through the one much more. Those who receive the abundance of grace and the gift of righteousness will reign through the one, Jesus Christ. You know, there's a lot of different things we could teach there. Reigning life, eternal life, salvation. I I mean, it's all included in those verses. Now, as I said, there's so much here. But the analogy between Christ and Adam boils down to this. One man, one act. One man did one thing, and it affected all of humanity. One man did another thing, and it affected all of humanity. And Paul gives that same argument over and over and over and over and over again. I thought this passage would never end when I was studying it. But it, it's just the same argument over and over with a little different uh, flavor to it each time. But the analogy between Christ and Adam boils down to this. One man, one act. Adam's one sin brought condemnation to all mankind, but one man's act of redemption made eternal life and salvation available to all mankind. Three or four times he says the free gift, the free gift, the free gift, the free gift of righteousness. Now, verse 15 tells us Adam's transgression was a death sentence to all men. But the one redemptive act of Christ brought the grace of God and the gift of God's grace, eternal life to all who would put their faith in Christ, right? And the language is celebratory here. I don't know if you caught that. It's celebratory. In Adam we all die, but Christ's redemption is much more powerful. It conquers sin and death. It conquers the trials and tribulations of this life. And eternal life is a free gift for the taking. And it's for everyone who received receive the grace of God. It abounds to the many at the end of verse 15. Then in verse 16 he continues this uh, discussion by comparing the results. And the result is that the grace of God is greater than all of man's accumulated sins. Can you imagine that? I mean, I mean just for a second, try and fathom. I tried to fathom this while I was uh, preparing this message. I just thought, you know, to, Adam brought in damnation to everyone through one sin. Ever since then, man has been sinning over and over and over. You know, we, we use the illustration in uh, uh, Evangelism Explosion. If you say you only sin 10 times a day, you'd be doing pretty good, right? And then you say, well, what, what if you only sin three times a day? You'd be almost perfect. But over a lifetime, you know how many sins that is? Like if you live 70 years, that's like 70,000 Sins, plus. And we all think we're doing pretty good. Christ died for all the sins accumulated by an entire humanity that would believe in him. Think how many sins are just in this room. Don't think too hard on that, but, <laughs> you know, just think about it. I mean, we have maybe 200 people here times 70,000. 70,000. I don't know what that is, but you can figure it out. But that's incredible. Just for Christ, the efficacy, the results of his finished work on the cross to take care of that many sins would be incredible, but then throw in the entire world of those who would believe. It's it's just unfathomable. It took one act of disobedience for sin to enter the world and spread the cancer of sin and the many transgressions, but much more powerfully, it took only the one act of Christ to die once for all, for all time, Hebrews 10 tells us, to take care of the accumulated sins of mankind. One act of Christ wiped away the multitude of sins in each believer's life, resulting in justification and are forgiven standing before God, and that included everyone who will believe, millions and millions and millions and millions down through the ages, right? I love Colossians 1, 13 and 14. It says, God transferred us from the domain of darkness, the domain of death, and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of our sins. Just think about that in your own life. How great is forgiveness? I mean, how awesome is forgiveness? You know, I, I was reminded of my former life when I went down to, you know, celebrate with uh, the guys that a couple weeks ago, and it was just an overwhelming thing to think, you know, that's what I was, and now what Christ has made me, and I still sin, and he's still forgiving me. I don't sin that grace may abound. We'll see that in a moment, but we still sin. And it's amazing that Christ has paid the penalty for all those sins, the accumulated sins of all who would believe. John Calvin wrote, Since the fall of Adam had such an effect as to produce ruin to many or to all, much more efficacious is the grace of God to the benefit of many, inasmuch as it is admitted that Christ is much more powerful to save than Adam was to destroy. That's precisely what verse 17 says. It says, for if by the transgression of the one, Adam, death reign through the one, much more those who receive the abundance of grace. Notice it's not just grace; it's abundant grace. God gives you out of the storehouse of His grace, and of the gift of righteousness will reign to the through the one, Jesus Christ. You know, man is a sinner, right? Death continues to reign as we continue to sin. But much more powerfully, much more abundantly, those who receive the abundance of God's grace and the gift of God's righteousness will reign forever in life with the one who conquered sin and death, Jesus Christ. I always think of 2 Corinthians 5.21 where it says, God made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf that we would become the righteousness of God in him. You know, think of the accumulated sin of your lifetime. And think of the fact that in Christ you have been declared righteous before God. When God looks at you, he doesn't see the vile, wicked sinner that we have been or are. But he sees the righteousness of his own son, the perfection of his own son. If that doesn't bring you to tears when you're meditating and thinking about that, there's something wrong. It's just powerful. Man is a sinner. But much more powerfully, God is abundant in grace. John Bunyan wrote his first book called Grace Abounding to the Chief of Sinners. And he was so overwhelmed with that, they let him out of jail. He went back to preaching, and they threw him back in jail. And then then he wrote uh, Pilgrim's Progress, which has probably been the second bestseller of the Bible forever. But uh, what a guy. Here he was, the tinker, cobbler, whatever you want to call him, shoemaker. And he was one of the most powerful preachers that there was and still preaches today through those books. But um, he was overwhelmed with God's grace. And I think as Christians, we need to be overwhelmed with the grace of God, the abundant grace of God, the abundant gift of righteousness. It's a gift. God's not waiting for you to earn it. He gave it. He's not waiting for you to give enough money to the church or pay off the church mortgage. or uh, He's... Just simply gives it to you as a free gift. And it says that over and over and over and over. And I hope we get it, that it's a free gift. And I hope as you look at it as a free gift that you're overwhelmed with the grace of God, because that is from where your worship and your adoration, your praise of God will come. As long as we're focused on ourselves and trying to be nice and wonderful, uh there's not going to be much praise of God there. It'll be praise of me. But when we're overwhelmed with the grace of God, then praise elicits from our life. This is true of the Apostle Paul. Turn to First Timothy. I love Paul's experience with God. would have looked forward to talking to Paul someday in heaven and just kind of seeing what the spirit of the man is really like, because it's very discernible in Scripture. He says, uh, and here's Paul. He's lived the Christian life for quite a while, and he's talking to Timothy, his disciple, his son in the faith. And He says, you know, I thank Christ Jesus our Lord who strengthened me because he considered me faithful, putting me into service. That's wonderful. We all like to serve God, and we all like to think we're accomplishing a lot for God and he says even though I was formerly a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent aggressor Paul actually had Christians incarcerated had him put to death they laid their when they're stoning Stephen they laid their cloaks at the you know his feet because he was the one they're honoring him by by killing Stephen right and then he was on his uh Way to Damascus, breathing, breathing ther- threats and murders against the disciples of the Lord. And He says, yet I was shown mercy uh, because I acted ignorantly in unbelief, and the grace of our Lord was more than abundant with the faith and love which are found in Christ Jesus. More than abundant. This is a trustworthy statement deserving full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Among whom I am foremost of all. Yet for this reason I found mercy, so that in me as the foremost, Jesus might demonstrate his perfect patience as an example for those who would believe in him for eternal life. Notice Paul's response to this. This is why I just said what I said about if you really understand the grace of God in your life and what you have been forgiven of and how much you've been forgiven of, it'll elicit worship like never before. He says, Now to the King, eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. When we see God for who he really is and what he has really done in our life, it elicits worship from us from the deepest recesses of our heart. Paul says in this passage, uh, if Christ can save me, he can save anyone. Our God abounds in loving kindness and mercy, and that's what elicits our praise and our worships, saved by God's grace, not by our good works. And again, he takes an aim at good works because good works are wonderful, but they don't save you. Good works are the essence of the Christian life, but they don't save you. Christ saves you. It's by his abundant grace, by his gift of righteousness that we're saved. Now, Paul concludes this argument in verses 18 through 21, and it's the same argument as he's done for the last eight or so verses. (laughs) He says, so then, let's wrap this up. As though one transgression... There resulted condemnation to all men. Even so, through one act of righteousness, there resulted justification of life to all men. Just as Adam condemned everyone, Christ makes the possibility of eternal life and salvation available to every man or woman. He says, "For as through the one man's disobedience, through the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners." Even so, through the obedience of the one, the many will be made righteous. Again, the contrast. The law came in so that the transgression would increase, because law just makes you literally look bad, right? Fall driven down to Fresno. He says, but sin, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. So that as sin reigned in death, Even so, grace would reign through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Now again, he repeats the one man, one transgression, total condemnation of all men, but one man, one act of righteousness resulting in justification of life to all men who believe. And the essence of that, verse 19, is that one man's disobedience to God led to all men being disobedient to God, but on the other hand, the obedience of Christ, remember, he came to do the Father's will. In the garden he even prayed, not my will, but thine be done. I, he wasn't looking forward to the cross in the sense he was looking past the cross to the redemption of men. You know, for the joy set before him, he endured the cross, despising the shame, Hebrews 12 tells us. But, but he was obedient to the Father's will. Because we need a redeemer. We need a savior. We need one to save us from our sin. And Christ took that upon himself in the recesses of eternity past and made it happen in time because of his obedience. But because he was obedient, we can be obedient too. Did you know salvation is not a good idea? It's not just a choice. It's, not just, it's a command. Repent of your sin and turn to the sin. It's not, it's, not, it's not an option. It's either repent or perish. Right? It's a command. We need to quit, present it as, oh, you'd be so much better if you were a Christian. Oh. No, you're going to hell if you are not a Christian because it's commanded of you to come to Christ. Because he is the Savior. His one act of righteousness is what takes care of all your transgressions. Recently saw a movie. A guy was talking about the fact he had sold his soul to the devil. And for the last 60 years, he'd been trying to reclaim it. Well, the only way to reclaim your soul is to give it to Christ. To give your life to Christ. That's it. It's the only way to do it. There's no other option. Then he brings up the law of Moses again in verse 20, and, and all it did was to bring about greater condemnation. You know, so I thought about this. I thought about, I heard described in a movie one time about a, a gal who was going to be cast in the movie and they're going to use overhead lighting because she's going to be the grandma and they wanted to bring out every bump and bag and wrinkle and imperfection. That's all the law does. It shows every bump and bag and wrinkle and, you know, the crow's feet and everything. That's what the law does to us. All it shows, nobody keeps the law. Nobody can keep the law. It's impossible to save yourself. And Paul brings that out again, you know, that uh, it made sin even more sinful. It made ugly even uglier. But then he tells us, Where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. I love that. Grace greater than all our sin. But does that give me the license to sin, that God would pour out his grace even more if I sin more? No. Chapter 6, and we'll see this next time, he says, What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may increase? May it never be. How shall we who died to sin still live in it? And, you know, all he's in essence is saying is that God's grace is greater than all our sin, and ultimately the only sin that cannot be forgiven is the sin of unbelief, and that's it. I don't know, you know, how you've sinned. I don't know how you've robbed God of his glory in your life Uh, if you don't know Christ this morning, but God's grace abounds to sinners. That's the beauty of it. One man's transgression brought death and sin into the world, One man's righteous act of going to the cross, bearing our sins, rising from the dead, victorious over sin and death, brought righteousness to us, free for the taking. But it's a free gift. Christ is holding it out to you. The question is, do you want it? Are you humble enough to admit that you're a sinner and and receive the free gift of righteousness or... Will you spurn it again and say, no, I'll take my chances. I'm kind of a nice person. Then he concludes in verse 21. He says, so that as sin reigned in death, even so grace would reign through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. You know, I don't know if you've noticed it, but, you know, salvation has not much to do with religion or whether you're a good person or a nice person or whether you're a horrible person, it has everything to do with Christ and him crucified and him resurrected. So, beloved, what will it be? Five times in this passage he says either death or life, Adam or Christ, law or grace, condemnation or eternal life, disobedience or obedience, sin or forgiveness, the reign of death or the reign of life. Who or what have you chosen to be king over your life? Sin, Satan, self, or the salvation offered to you in Christ Jesus? And I might add, as a free gift. Who would turn down the free gift of eternal life? You know? Sounds to me like the greatest bargain in the world. Which one have you chosen? Are you still in Adam or are you in Christ? The reign of death or the reign of life? The reign of sin or the reign of righteousness? The reign of obedience or disobedience? The reign of heaven or hell? That's the story of Romans chapter 5, the end of the chapter. And and I hope we've all got the message because it's over there, over and over and over and over and over again. And that's the beauty of it. And by now I hope we've all given our hearts to Christ because he is the Savior. He's the one and only Savior in this world. And you can search high and low and you won't find one to even come close to being as equal. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that uh, Paul just drives this home over and over and over and over again that, that death entered through Adam and that By one act of righteousness, Christ made it possible for us to enter into eternal life. And we thank you for the gift of life this morning. We thank you for your grace. We thank you for your mercy. We thank you for the gift of righteousness that has been imputed to us. And uh, Lord, I just pray as we contemplate that this week, that our hearts would be overwhelmed with the grace of God and how merciful and wonderful and And amazing you are in offering that to us. We pray in Christ's name.